Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast for November 2022. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. And we've got another great collection of papers to take you through. I think we've got five of them and we're going to take you through a range of topics as usual. We're going to start with headache. So we've picked out two nice papers on headache. The first one I was an author of. Ah, well, that'd be good to hear from you, Rick. Um, so hopefully you know this paper very, very well, as we were talking about before the podcast. Yeah, it would certainly be embarrassing if I don't know about the paper. Although it was led by Tom Roberts, and the chief investigator for this study was Anne-Marie Kelly from Melbourne. So I'll tell you a little bit about it. So the HEAD study was an international multi-centre observational study, which took place in 67 emergency departments in 10 countries. It's a really nice idea, led by Anne-Marie Kelly, and it leads on from the Eurodem study and the ANSDEM study a few years ago, which did a similar thing for patients who had shortness of breath. A simple observational study collecting a snapshot of data from patients who attended the emergency departments, and you can get so much value out of those data. So here we've got the HEAD study, which recruited patients with a chief complaint of headache presenting to those emergency departments. And there were over four and a half thousand of them recruited in a one month period. It was very, very simple. We just prospectively collected data from these as patients attending the ED and then followed them up to get their final diagnoses. And in this study, led by Tom Roberts, we were looking to see the predictive value of a thunderclap nature to the headache. Does it correlate with serious diagnoses? Is it true that you're more likely to have a subarachnoid hemorrhage if you had a thunderclap nature to your headache as opposed to a gradual onset and all sorts of other things? So there were actually 644 patients in the cohort who had a thunderclap headache. So that's 14% of all of the patients in the head study. And it's true. If you have a thunderclap nature to your headache, you are more likely to have serious underlying pathology. So 10.9% of the patients with a thunderclap headache had serious pathology versus 6.6% of those who had a gradual onset. Of course, the diagnosis that we worry about most in patients with a thunderclap headache is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that was present in 3.6% of those with a thunderclap headache versus 0.3% of the patients with only a gradual onset. So it's quite true that it is predictive of subarachnoid hemorrhage, but it's worth bearing in mind that still a very small minority of all of the patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. There were some other interesting findings from the study. About 30% of patients with a thunderclap headache had no neuroimaging at all. I was surprised by that because if I see a patient with thunderclap headache, I'd find it quite difficult to avoid neuroimaging, I have to be honest. Also, of the patients who had a normal CT scan, only 17.5% of them went on to have a lumbar puncture. Uh, And of those, 1.7% had xanthochromia or red cells identified. So actually, I mean, that, that backs up the frustration that we often feel with putting patients through these lumbar punctures. There's a very small yield from lumbar puncture. 11.7% of the patients who underwent lumbar puncture actually had an infection as the underlying cause. Uh, And we did quite a few CT angiograms after patients had had a normal CT scan. Now, none of them were reported to have an aneurysm with a bleed, 
although 6.1% had aneurysm without a bleed. So that just reinforces the suggestion that maybe when we do CT angiography in these patients, we might pick up some incidental aneurysms, and that maybe happened here. One patient, that's 2% of the total who had a CTA, had MCA, middle cerebral artery hypoperfusion. So those are the key findings of the study. I found it quite interesting and informative. It sort of reinforces the predictive value of thunderclap nature to the headache, but also the fact that the vast majority of these patients don't have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and therefore there's value in using clinical prediction models in this patient group. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, partly why I picked these couple of headache papers is that headaches often cause me a bit of a headache in the emergency department. I think there's always that worry about, you know, is it subarachnoid? Is it something else? Uh, And it it is challenging. And as you say, this paper was really interesting. And again, it really surprises me. Don't really get many subarachnoid hemorrhages. You know, it's one of those things that we panic about. We're like, oh gosh, you know, the worst headache of my life. You know, and actually, if I think about it, it's very unusual if I actually truly scan someone that I ever find a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So it was really interesting to see some of the evidence around this. Absolutely. And sticking with the headache theme, you've also taken a look at a paper which presents the results of a systematic review in this area. Yeah, so this is a systematic review really looking at the management of patients who present to the emergency department with sudden onset severe headache. And what they've essentially done is a systematic review of sort of diagnostic accuracy of studies. The lead author here is Walton, and it's done by a group up in Leeds and Yorkshire, actually. And what they did was, you know, your standard systematic review, lots of databases, and they found 37 studies were included. And essentially, the diagnostic uh, tools that they were looking at is the Canadian sort of Ottawa subarachnoid rule. They looked at the utility of a CT lumbar puncture pathway. So you have your CT and then you go on to have your lumbar puncture. They also just looked at the CT. They looked at just a lumbar puncture. They looked at the utility of a CT angio or just um, history and examination. Papers were from, you know, your typical countries, so the US, Australia, the UK, the Netherlands, and quite some interesting studies which almost counteract uh, some of the stuff in the previous paper. But so so the, the big thing is, is that CTs done within six hours of headache onset with images assessed by a neuroradiologist or a radiologist who routinely interprets brain images is highly accurate. So this is really helpful in ruling out people who have got subarachnoid and it, and it, and it estimates about one in 658 CT negative patients would have to undergo another further investigation to look for a single subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, looking at some of the other things, so lumbar puncture, so that thing that we often end up referring these patients to the medics for. So they looked at, um, so how lumbar puncture is done across the world is very differently. So in the UK, we predominantly send it off to the lab, looking at spectrometric analysis of the CSF, looking for xanthalochromia versus um, standard sort of you practice around the, in other places around the world is just to have a look at it by sight and have a look at it. And what they found was in the studies that we're able to include was that actually CSF analysis um, by spectrometry um, had a higher sensitivity but a lower specificity than visual inspection for xanthochromia. And with that, 
goes the fact that actually if the CT is done over six hours from onset of symptoms, that actually you might end up needing to uh, consider doing a lumbar puncture. When looking at some of the other modalities and assessment tools, so particularly the the, the um, Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage tool, wasn't found to be particularly hugely sensitive or specific um, and actually um, often found in the studies that were included within this paper that they increased the rates of um, diagnostic tests that needed to be done, including CT and lumbar puncture. So the bottom line really with this paper, um, and which is where I say it's a little bit different conclusions to, to Rick's previous paper, is that, you know, CT head within six hours of headache with an a- access to a neuroradiology expertise who can interpret those images could, in theory, rule out subarachnoid. Lumbar puncture, be it visual inspection or using spectrometry, is can be sensitive but not very specific and you may need to combine a CT and a lumbar puncture approach to assessing if there is a subarachnoid hemorrhage and finally that the Ottawa subarachnoid tool is not as sensitive as we would like in this case. What's your thoughts Rick? Well I thought that this was really helpful for the CT within six hours of symptom onset aspect because you can see that the the confidence intervals around the sensitivity are quite tight now that we've got a systematic review and meta-analysis. So the sensitivity of CT within six hours was 98.7% and the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval was 96.5%. That's pretty good and it's a technique that I start to have lots more confidence in now that I see a meta-analysis with all of these data. So I think that's something that I would be willing to use in practice. The caveat is, of course, that some I think some of the studies did, as you said, use a neuroradiologist to interpret the images. And the question is whether you'd get the same sensitivity when we have a general radiology trainee doctor overnight, for example, reporting our images. You've got to just bear that in mind. With regard to the clinical decision rules, I was really hopeful that, you know, by doing a meta-analysis, we might see something that we could actually use to avoid unnecessary lumbar punctures. However, there were two problems, like you say, sensitivity, the confidence intervals for sensitivity went down a little too far, 90.8%, although the actual sensitivity was high, the confidence intervals that were too wide, and the specificity of the Ottawa CT um, subarachnoid hemorrhage rule was not great. So 76% of patients would still need further imaging after application of the decision rule. And that's a lot. So I was a little bit disappointed about that, but still a very, very helpful paper. And I will take away the tight sensitivity of CT within six hours of symptom onset. I suppose the one thing to think about about that, given how pressured emergency medicine is across the world, how many patients who present within six hours of their worst headache of their life or their thunderclap headache, are we actually going to be able to do their CT within six hours? So, you know, there's the patient having the headache going, do I, do I not need to go to the emergency department? And by the time they get to us and are triaged, I think it's going to be hugely difficult and it's just one of those things that I was thinking about when you know reading all of this I'd love to do it but actually most patients I'm seeing sadly are over six hours. Very true and with the long waits we're seeing in the emergency departments right now you would have to try and make that decision at triage 
because by the time you've seen the patient, they're unlikely to be still within six hours of symptom onset, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a shame. But um, I think it's positive that, you know, practice is slowly changing in this field. Absolutely. So if we move on, uh, we're going to change topic. And I'm going to talk about uh, an interesting paper about temperature measurement in babies born in the pre-hospital setting. So this is analysis led by Laura Goodwin with Jonathan Benger as the senior author, and it's based in the southwest of England. Here they did a mixed method study in two phases, and they wanted to know about how good we are at measuring temperature in babies who are born in that pre-hospital environment. Now, clearly, it's an important issue. Uh, We know that those neonates are going to be susceptible to hypothermia, particularly given the nature of the environment that they're being born into. So temperature monitoring is really important. In this study, they started off by doing a quantitative analysis to have a look at uh, retrospective data and see how often temperature was measured in the births that uh, took place in that setting during the study period. And then they went on to do some interviews with paramedics to look at the barriers and facilitators to measuring temperature in the pre-hospital environment. So there were 1,582 deliveries that the paramedics attended to in those dates, which I thought was quite a lot, actually. Temperature was only recorded in 2.7% of the births uh, in the pre-hospital environment. So we're not very good at measuring it in that setting. In fact, when it was measured, the majority were below 36.5 degrees Celsius. So 72% of the babies who had a temperature measured had a temperature below 36.5. So that's the quantitative section of the study. They then went on to interview paramedics. I think there were 20 paramedics that they uh, interviewed to explore facilitators and barriers. And they found a number of themes, basically, that might hinder the paramedics from measuring temperature might explain the findings. So they often mentioned that equipment was unavailable or was unsuitable for measuring temperature in neonates. They also mentioned that they have to prioritise numerous other care activities. They've got lots to juggle in this environment. Lots has got lots going on. They've got to think about getting the, 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 the mother and the baby to hospital for attention. And there are other things they've got to look after. They've got the mum to look after as well. So it, it's really hard to think about all of these things and make sure that you're also considering the temperature of the baby. That's com- compounded by the fact that this is not something that paramedics do every single day. They get a lack of exposure to births. They're not obstetricians or midwives. They're, they're paramedics. They practice in a really wide field so of course there's a familiarity issue Uh, and then there's uncertainty about responsibilities and roles when it comes to doing this so lots of reasons why temperature monitoring wasn't taking place in the pre-hospital environment help us to understand the situation and do better in the future one thing to say it didn't report any actual harm in this study doesn't seem that the babies came to harm however It is, of course, a risk if you consistently don't measure temperature in these babies, especially if you've got a long transfer distance, then there is a potential for that to cause harm to babies in the future. So it's still a very important issue. 
Yeah, I think it was really interesting to hear about this paper. And I read it and I was like, gosh, it's something I probably not really considered. And um, and I guess most of those births that happen, we just never see in the emergency department because they'll obviously go to labour ward. And again, what taking from this paper, what I, I'm going to take, you know, as a not a pre-hospital clinician is that actually recording temperatures in babies born in the department and... Um, and you you think that's simple, but actually in the heat of the moment when you've got an unexpected delivery, I think anywhere, you know, the, the basics can be forgotten. Absolutely. So a very helpful reminder for paramedics who have such a wealth of information that they need to retain and it just highlights what a what a difficult job it is in that environment. Moving on, you've come back into the emergency department and had a look at the impact of stress experience that emergency physicians have of stress during resuscitation yeah so this was a paper looking at emergency physicians experience of stress during resuscitations and strategies for mitigating and this was done by our australian colleagues with the lead author being greenbridge et al so we we obviously all know you and i know rick and probably all our listeners know that stress you know can hinder performance and particularly within the emergency department you know it's really important in these high stressful events you know how we manage that personally manage the team and and how we deal with the aftermath afterwards so this was a two-centered uh, study mixed methods focus groups and an online uh, survey and looking um, at the you know looking at the mix of pay, you know people that were involved you know sort of male female split um, was ab- about the same in fact more males responded in this uh, in this survey um, and what was interesting really was was what people found stressful and what they did they compared initially juniors versus seniors so juniors are less than 10 years versus seniors who are more than 10 years of practice within emergency medicine. So the um, um, the most uh, the pa- looking when you think about patient factors, the unwell pediatric patient um, across the board, whether you're junior or whether you're senior, was the most stressful. Followed by the unwell pregnant patient, followed by a patient who is markedly unwell without a clear cause. Interestingly, or not interestingly, perhaps, um, a patient in cardiac arrest was the least uh, patient-factored stressor for both groups. When thinking about um, individual team factors, um, the conflict with a team member and presentation of an unfamiliar pathology were the top two. And then thinking about the environment, you know, it's the similar sort of things that the paramedics study study was saying before, you know, equipment's not available or not functioning and, and, and that sort of thing. The most useful mitigators were found with, with the highest sensitivity was visualization techniques and mental rehearsal. That was with the, with the juniors and that was the most uh, significant of the data. For juniors and seniors, the most popular mitigator was that verbalizing the plan to the team, which, which you know, and having that shared mental model and, and that, that makes sense. The paper then um, took the same um, sort of things and looked at the male-female divide. 
and looked at the the p values around that so and this is where it you know this is where actually it gets really interesting and perhaps a, a difference in, in in approaches by gender so for again patient factors were exactly the same for male and females it's the unwell pediatric patient followed by the unwell pregnant patient the most significant for individual and team factors um, where these the p value was less than 0.01% so if you were female it was undertaking a procedure which is less familiar with 71% of female participants uh, finding that a stressful factor with the next significant one being a previous bad experience with a similar case uh, with 58% of female participants and again both of those are the p-value less than 0.01%. And the other thing was the mitigators, and this is where it, it gets really d- different across the genders. So, for women, um, asking for help was a really significant mitigator with a p-value of 0.01. And actually, for men, the most popular was verbalising the plan, and then it then it decreased um, down. So the bottom line really is here is that you know you know stress. Is there, you know, similarly, whether you're junior, uh, senior, male, female, and um, factors that um, were important included key patient presentations, team factors such as conflict, increased stress, and strategies for mitigation included things such as, you know, varied depending with gender, sex, and, and years experience. So I thought this was really interesting and I hadn't quite read a paper quite like this. Um, and I think more work needs to be done in this field. I agree. I find this a helpful paper because it makes me reflect on my practice. It's like watching someone else leading a resuscitation. You learn from them, from what they do and how they might do things differently to you. And here we see aggregated data from other emergency physicians talking about what what helps them or what's very stressful to them. And I learn a lot from it. So the the gender issue that you mentioned, you know, you, how women found that asking for help was a mitigating factor. And much that was much less common in the men. So it makes me think, well, actually, do I ask for help enough? <laughs> you know, is that something that I underutilize, for example? And similarly, with the junior doctors, mental rehearsal was often used as a strategy. And that's interesting because that's one that I do now use because I've recognized how important it is to mentally rehearse situations. I find it's very, very helpful to rehearse a number of different situations. The cardiac arrest thing, you can certainly empathize with because once a patient's in cardiac arrest we have preset algorithms that we just follow and to some extent there's almost nothing to lose in that situation it's far more scary when you've got an alive patient and you're really you know a patient who's still got a a beating heart and you're trying to stop them from going into cardiac arrest and you've not got that same dogmatic algorithm to follow i guess so i can i can totally get that yeah, I completely get that. And um, I was just looking at the the factors for, you know, fatigue and hunger, you know, when you get hangry. And actually, that was the least important to, to lots of these. So again, it's about environment. Again, it's about good team. Again, it's about that, you know, mental rehearsal and being familiar. And I was thinking about what you were just saying. Uh, when I was doing my PEM, so my paediatric emergency specialty training, every night I'd go in and when I'm in charge of the, the paediatric department rehearsing what I would do if the dead child or baby came in because it's so rare and it was the thing that I most feared. And when it eventually happened, it was fine. 
the situation is not easy, but actually my mental pre- preparation for it was really, really good. So that really helped. So um, I'm going to hand you over to our last paper, which is about your favorite topic, Rick, which is myocardial infarction and uh, markers for it. So I'll let you lead on that. Yeah, I couldn't finish the episode without talking a little bit about troponin. So we've got a nice paper from Melbourne here led by Rob Meeks. And uh, I think Louise Cullen, is, uh, who's a good colleague and friend of mine, um, was an author on this paper as well. Here, they've done a retrospective study, including 935 patients from a single centre in Melbourne. They've basically me- measured samples in parallel using a contemporary troponin assay, which is ma- manufactured by Beckman Coulter. So that's not high sensitivity. And they've also measured high-sensitivity troponin in those samples. They didn't use the high-sensitivity troponin levels to guide the management of the patients. It was a kind of observational study. But they did get some consent from patients, so it's not entirely uh, retrospective. They got consent for a three-hour sample from the patients during the course of this. So what they wanted to do is have a look at the impact of potentially implementing this high-sensitivity troponin assay and compare it to the old pathway. You might think this is old news. We all use high-sensitivity troponin assays. The important thing about this is it's specific evidence for an assay that's commonly used in practice. So if you use Beckman troponin assays in your hospital, you will be grateful to see some evidence for a specific pathway because it's going to inform what you do. You can't take the evidence from a Roche assay or an Abbott assay or a Siemens assay and extrapolate it to Beckman. The Beckman high sensitivity troponin assay was only relatively recently introduced in practice. So this evidence is going to help you to design your chest pain pathway. And that's why it's an important one for us to publish. So with the old pathway in Melbourne, basically you had a troponin of less than 80, then you'd do an EDAX score the clinical decision rule that they use and you'd repeat the sample in 90 minutes and if it was again below 80 which is actually quite a high level then you discharge the patient so they carried on doing that during the study period but the new pathway that they looked at was whether you could send some people home after one sample so your first troponin with the high sensitivity assay is less than two that's the limit of detection of the assay providing that there were more than two hours from symptom onset and then if your troponin was above 50 for women or 100 for men, then you rule in. Um, and the rest get risk stratified with EDAX and you have a serial sample at 90 minutes if you're low risk or three hours if you are sort of in the middle in the observation zone. And you rule out based on the change in the troponin between the samples. So they then looked at the incidence of major adverse cardiac events in the groups. Now, only six patients had a major adverse cardiac event after discharge. So if you want to look at sensitivity, the study isn't ideal because the confidence intervals are going to be very, very wide. However, no patients in the low risk group by either the conventional pathway or the new pathway using high sensitivity troponin had a major adverse cardiac event. So it looks like it was a, it was a safe pathway, although of course you still need more data on sensitivity. So I guess what this is showing us is this is a workable pathway. You still want more data on sensitivity for the confidence intervals, but it's outlining sort of negative predictive value and potential impact. There were a couple of other important things to pull out from this. When you implement high sensitivity troponin assays, there are a few things you might worry about. 
Do you get lots more patients with positive tests, for example? And you do. You get 29% of positive tests using this Beckman assay versus 19% with the old assay. So it's not, it's a bit more, it's not loads more, and that's kind of expected. Do you get more cardiology referrals? Do you, you know, because you see more elevations, do you end up referring more patients to cardiology? Well, not really, actually. 21% with the old pathway would be referred to cardiology versus the projection with the new pathway is 22%. Uh, now, do you get a lot of people home with one test? It doesn't look like it, to be honest. Only 1% rapid rule out with a novel pathway in this, in this study. So actually, that was interesting data, suggesting it's perhaps not as efficient as you might think it would be for one test rule out. Do you admit fewer patients? Actually, according to this pathway, not necessarily. 43% with the old pathway, 42% with the new pathway. So we've got data, some evidence for the safety of this pathway, and we've got some interesting data that tell us how this might work if you use it in practice. I think it shows that there's potential to make this bit more efficient. Maybe their risk stratification could be a bit leaner and allow more people to go home initially. But a very interesting study, very nicely done, very interesting concepts to do it retrospectively with just a kind of consent process for a three-hour sample. It just goes to show there's still a huge amount of work to be done on troponins. It's not, you know, you've still got a long, long time ahead in your career to sort troponins out, Rick. That's great news. I'm not going to be out of a job just yet. So that brings us to the end of the papers that we've got for the November episode of the podcast. Uh, it's been great talking with you about the papers, Sarah, and we're going to meet again uh, in December. Yes, we are. Um, goodbye, everyone, and see you soon. Take care.